All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us a local assembly where we can gather together as family and fellowship, walking in the light, walking by means of the Spirit, doing this thing that matters most, that is taking in the very Word of God, the bread of life. Thank you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the work your Son did on the cross, for you ordained it so, to make all this a reality, to cancel out that debt, so that we too might have a joy set before us. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is a continuation, of course, part 13 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification. A bit more practical this evening, just to set you up um, a little bit more practical. And uh, With that said, I want to read to you a recent uh, post I put out on a social network, uh, and uh, I don't even know how long I'm going to be doing that anymore, to be honest with you. Um, but this is how it went, and it's just really been um, a lot to do with the culmination of the studies and the direction that the Spirit's been taking the congregation. I'm very attuned to that kind of a thing. <clears throat> you know, I ask him frequently, you know, where, where are you taking us, this kind of a thing. And he reveals enough that, uh, you know, I can share this way. I have found, this is my quote, I have found that more often than not when truly good-intentioned believers argue over a point for too long, it means that one or both are asking the wrong questions. The reason? Too many believers make the grave error of using their experience as their guide to discovering the deep truths in the Bible this is where bad questions arise and arguments often stem from. One or more persons arguing over answers to questions that are based on poor presuppositions. In legal speak, God says, objection, leading the witness. And that's what he's taught us in the past, bad questions. Always, continuing with the quote, always be careful of the viability of the question, whether the author or the hearer. If you find yourself arguing, take a step back and examine your presuppositions. Agree on those facts first before spiraling into a fruitless discussion without a scriptural foundation. We are to use the Bible to examine our experiences never the other way around. Get your facts straight before you pontificate. End of quote. And uh, I wanted to share that with you because that's um, been a recurring theme now for some time uh, relative to things like human rationalism, uh, getting things wrong. I wrote a blog on it. Uh, he's been bringing it up from the pulpit as well. And it's interesting because the day after I wrote that, I happened to be reading through of, uh, some of Jonathan Edwards' works. Um, he's an, uh, sort of an older 
was from the 1700s, called Christian Cautions and the Necessity of Self-Examination. Christian Cautions and the Necessity of Self-Examinations is the book. Let me give you some quotes here, or at least this one for starters, from Jonathan Edwards. Quote, men are very apt to bring their principles to their practices and not their practices to their principles, as they ought to do. They in, they in their practice comply not with their consciences, but all their strife is to bring their consciences to comply with their practice, if that makes sense. Again, men are very apt to bring their principles to their practices and not their practices to their principles, as they ought to do. They, in their practice, comply not with their consciences, but all their strife is to bring their consciences to comply with their practice. Now, given the fact that Edwards was born in 1703, back down in Connecticut, we ought to be encouraged by his timeless observations, although he seems genuinely, genuinely more articulate and arguably more intelligent than yours truly. Our observations are lockstep. Please just remember all of the emphasis lately on human rationalism. It's a very subtle, dangerous thing, this idea of human rationalism. And I think the more I learn in the Word of God and the more I see how Satan trips up individuals, this is one of his favorites, using and uh, proposing bad questions based on what we would call human rationalism. We start in the garden with Eve. Uh, And so it makes sense that it would be one of his favorites ever since. So just remember that all the emphasis lately on human rationalism, particularly as to how detrimental it is to seeing it all as truth. And remember that these are the Spirit's lessons, not mine. While I was reading Edward's material, I read some of another book he wrote called The Wicked. Their understandings are inconsistent with themselves. The Wicked. Their understandings are inconsistent with themselves. It's interesting because human rationalism has no place being by itself in a Christian's thinking. It really has no place. The primary reason being that the things of God are beyond human rationalism. Go to Isaiah 55.8. Isaiah 55.8. So it's true, human rationalism has no place being by itself in a Christian's thinking. The primary reason being, again, that the things of God are far beyond human rationalism. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with Scripture. And that's the whole point that the Spirit's been making is that we start with Scripture and we evaluate or we discern the details or even the artifacts of our life. Um, But we do not take the details and the artifacts and evaluate Scripture. That's not how it goes. That's a very dangerous uh, thing to do. Isaiah 55, 8 says it clearly, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So you're not born with his mind. Uh, We do, over time, take in the word of God, the very mind of Christ, 
And so we have given to us the great pearls uh, in Scripture, uh, great faith to follow, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us out with these things. Christ himself said, I'll leave my spirit with you so he can bring to remembrance that which you what? learned, that which you heard. But if you never come to class or you never read your Bible, you don't ever learn anything. So what's he going to bring into remembrance? So that leaves you with human rationalism. Well, what would God do? And you have no, no word of God at all in your soul. And then it's just what? The word for speculation. It's inventions. And that's what the wicked do. And in that way, you become like them in that sense. So I'm not saying there aren't day-to-day activities where rationalism has its place. I'm just saying that I find it interesting how people have even what I call selective rationalism. And if I was you know, open, if the Spirit had me stop the Part 13 thing, that would have been the title of tonight's message selective rationalism. It's interesting, to say the least, how individuals have this selective rationalism. For example, a person will believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after three days if it means they get to go to heaven. They have no problem with a man coming out of a cave after he was dead, like, you know, really dead, after three days and walking around and evangelizing people and and making disciples even then. People have no problem with that. But they refuse to believe God can ever change a person's heart at salvation or that creationism is just a figurative story since, you know, intelligent design makes so much more sense. I call that selective rationalism. And I believe that believers do it all the time. They may not like or they may be ignorant of what Scripture actually has to say on a subject, and so they rationalize it. And instead of actually going to the Scripture and finding out for themselves, or going to class and finding out through the pulpit for themselves, or reading the blogs, or whatever, whatever grace you've got, instead of doing those things, They're selective in their rationalism. You tell them good things, and they're here every night. You start talking about something they don't like, they disappear, and then they go use their human rationalism in a selective way. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. All right, back to the wicked, this book. The wicked, their understandings are inconsistent with themselves by Jonathan Edwards. Let me give you some quotes from this. And it's good food for thought. I'm going to give you some quotes, and then in between I'm going to read some of his backup, okay? So I'm going to give you the highlights here. The first is this. The wicked's practical judgment is inconsistent with their own reason. Their practical judgment is inconsistent with their own reason. He continues this way. By their practical judgment, I mean that judgment which they make of things that prevail so as to determine their actions and govern their practice. This, in wicked men, is in innumerable things contrary to their own reason, for informing their judgment of things by which they govern themselves. They do not inquire at the mouth of reason, but at the mouth of their inclinations." 
Let me give you this. And I know he speaks completely, almost a foreign type of language, doesn't he? Yeah. It's interesting. Some of these old timers, they, they spoke exceptionally intelligent individuals. Um, but they had proper, very proper drawn out English. Up here in the board, <clears throat> again, same, same book, just a, more in the excerpt. The wicked's lusts have a far greater hand in the judgments that they make of things and by which they govern themselves than their reason. The wicked's lusts have a far greater hand in the judgments that they make of things and by which they govern themselves than their reason. And he continues, As for instance, their practical judgment is that the things of this fading world, the enjoyments of this short life, are things of greater importance than the things of the eternal world. And yet, if they inquire at the mouth of their own reason, that tells them the contrary. Their reason tells them that it is most plain and evident that eternal things, things that are to last forever, are of vastly greater importance than the things of time. I'll continue. The wicked's reason tells them that it is well worth the while for every man to deny himself outward pleasure for the good of his soul. But their governing opinion or judgment is contrary vis-a-vis that it is not best and that pleasures and the gratification of their lusts are worth more than any benefit they would obtain by seeking their salvation. In other words, the wicked, what he's really saying is the wicked don't even pay attention to themselves, to their own sound reasoning. And I like how he says, listen, any reasonable person is going to say, okay, you can have something that lasts, that's pretty good, that lasts 70 years, and focus on all of that. Or you can have something that's ridiculously good, beyond expression, that lasts for eternal, for all eternity. Which one's more valuable? But yet their lusts govern their judgment, and they choose the prior. And what he's saying is that's ridiculous. They don't even follow their own reason. That's how ridiculous unbelievers are. That's how ridiculous things are that we can even do when we act out and behave like unbelievers, when we choose the things of this world over eternal things, contrary to, guess what? Scripture! Go read Colossians 3 when you go home. Keep your eyes on things above, not on things on earth. But if you've never read that scripture, maybe it's not in your soul, you see what I'm saying. Again, the reason I quote such writing in detail is to encourage you that these are not novel issues at all that we are facing today. Man has always been, by nature, wicked. And the thing the Spirit's cautioning you of in even greater detail this evening is that same thing that he's had me teaching you for some time now. And I brought it up with the blog called Forbidden Fruit. It's human rationalism. He won't let it go. For whatever reason, he won't let it go. I know why. I have an idea why. Because we're all plagued with it. Um, The world impresses it upon us everywhere. Uh, It doesn't make sense anymore to use the Word of God to 
justify our actions. It makes more sense, because the world says it makes more sense, to use human rationalism to justify our actions, and as Edwards would say, even our judgment. So here's a quote from that blog. Human rationalism <clears throat> applied to Scripture bears bad fruit. Human experience ought never interpret the Bible. Rather, the Bible interprets human experience. The forbidden fruit may have changed form over the years, but the pattern for justifying eating it has remained the same. The flesh's affinity for its consumption is undeniable. If you recall, the point of that blog was to highlight the fact that the human flesh is actually aroused by the presence of law. In other words, look, the more you learn of the Word of God, guess what? The nastier your flesh is going to be. I've been thinking a lot lately. I've studied, like I've been saying, more than I have in a long, long time in any stretch of period. And my flesh is, in some ways, at an all-time high. It's crazy. I stopped studying for five minutes, and all these things are like taunting me and haunting me. Because guess what? The law arouses the flesh. See, I'm growing, and the flesh is saying, I don't like that at all. That puts us even further apart, even though we're still roommates in that body if you say it that way. And that's what I've been noticing, is that the more I learn, the worse my flesh gets. Doesn't mean I can't overcome it. Doesn't mean that through supernatural power that that thing, as I'm being sanctified more and more, that that thing is less, let's call it, alive to me or something like this. Because that's certainly happening as well. But if I look at the flesh for a moment, it's nastier than it's ever been. It's more disgruntled, it's more upset, it's more nagging, it's more clawing than it's ever been. Why? Because of what Scripture has taught me in Romans 7. That the more law I get, the more commands I understand, the more it's inculcated, if you would, the worse my flesh is going to be towards those things, the more antagonistic it's going to be. It actually, the flesh actually kicks into gear like a cornered rat at the threat of being incapacitated by the Holy Spirit arming the conscience and the soul with the Word of God. So please, don't take any of this on human rationalism lightly. These are tremendously important principles. Tremendously important principles, that you do not do that thing up on the board, that you take your experience and press it and try to find Scripture and go after the, the answers to life that way. Go to the Scripture with the faith of a child and then let it color your life. Let it have strokes and let it paint your life for you. But don't go the opposite direction. Okay? You're just going to frustrate yourselves. Changing gears a little bit with that in tow. <clears throat> On Sunday, we began with a wonderfully telling passage that the Apostle John penned towards the end of his life. 
the context being that he was trying to thwart the assault from the growing Gnosticism that was infecting the minds of those in the churches. He wasn't writing to a specific church, remember? Rather, as the only surviving eyewitness to Christ at the time, this was in the 90s of A.D., uh, he was the de facto, quote, elder of all the churches. He was the last apostle on the scene. So people had a tendency to listen. And so he wrote this letter when he saw the writing on the wall regarding Gnosticism. We hear the tone of his message quite clearly. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Because if you read his epistles, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, even his gospel, um, he's very black and white. It's light and darkness and good and evil and these kinds of things. Um, and that's quite okay. It's quite okay. And I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, how Satan loves to sow gray areas where they don't actually exist. And the way he does that, I'm convinced, is through human rationalism. Uh, it's a great mistake people make, even well-intentioned believers Satan loves to grow to sow what we'll call gray areas where they don't actually exist. What I mean to say is that the Bible is very clear on certain things, but Satan, often through the human device of rationalism, likes to get us asking all the wrong questions. Trust me, there's enough questions to ask that are good. And if you're reading your Bible, like he's saying, read your Bible and you're starting from the Bible, not from your experience, you will have plenty of questions to keep you occupied for the rest of your days. Just keep the questions grounded in what you're reading, in what you're learning in that moment in time. Don't show up with an agenda. Don't show up with emotionalism or don't show up with anything but the faith of a child and read the Scripture. Or if you're hearing the Word of God right now, listen to what He's saying. Listen to what He's saying. So let's review some Scripture from Sunday. Go to 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4.1. And just so you, you know, I mean, things get easier with that approach. It's a lot harder to come at the Bible with human rationalism than it is to start at the Bible and find out what life is all about. It's a lot easier to go the second route. It's a lot easier. Trust me, been there, done that. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I mean, how, I mean the extreme cases nowadays are, you know, it seems like everybody's standing behind some form of a pulpit. And everybody's calling themselves pastors and teachers and all this kind of thing. And many of them are just selling, uh, you know, the equivalent of Covey's Seven Habits for Success. Or, you know, how to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. Or how to, you know, prosper in the Word of God. This kind of a thing. All they're really doing is taking something that the world wants in finding Scripture to support it. And that's wholly the wrong approach to Scripture. But when the Scripture says this is the way it is, then guess what? This is the way it is. I don't care if you're, you're 
your little um, ego or your sensitive little self-esteem suffers. If it's suffering in the face of truth, then it's no good anyways. You need to get rid of that self-esteem anyways. You're better off going rock bottom again. Some days that's how I feel. You know? Think you, think you had it nailed, and then he's like, sorry. You didn't. But the key to the spiritual life is what? Humility. So you have to go, okay, here we go. This is what Scripture said. This is what it says. Never saw that before. I see it now. Thank you, Lord. Up here on the board, <clears throat> on that note, human rationalism, one of the hallmarks of human rationalism is that the world will actually listen to it. Isn't that the funniest thing? You show up as a Christian with human rationalism, the world will actually listen to you. Believers must learn to avoid such conversations as they are fruitless. It's impossible to convict someone of sin if the supernatural is agreed upon as inadmissible in court. If the two parties come together <laughs> and something's thrown out of court, like the supernatural, well, what do you have to argue then? What, what is it that you're going to talk to about with this unbeliever? Or maybe two idiot believers that aren't thinking scripturally or supernaturally, they get in arguments, like I started with, bad questions. They're talking about things outside of or extra-biblical things. And they fight with one another, tooth and nail. But I'm talking about here, individuals that should know better, but use human rationalism, and the world will listen to them. Believers must learn to avoid such conversations as they are fruitless. It's impossible to convict someone of sin if the supernatural is agreed upon as inadmissible in court. Therein lies the danger of having that conversation in the first place. I was thinking about it this way. If the pillar of your beliefs are inadmissible in court, and I'm just using that phrase, I hope everybody knows what I'm talking about. It's when something, you know, key evidence gets thrown out of court because of some fumble or something like that. Um, if the pillar of your beliefs are inadmissible in court, and you have that little court scene between you and the unbeliever, let's say, because they are supernatural, then how will you ever convict the human flesh of truth? A perfect example is sex. Here we go again. Everybody's like, yay, my favorite subject. <laughs> so a perfect example of this is, is sex. So we're going to have a little discussion here about this practical thing. An unbeliever and a believer sit down to talk about sex. The unbeliever says, I believe sex is totally natural, and as long as both parties are consenting, it's okay, etc., etc. The believer turns and says something astounding to the unbeliever. Well, the Bible teaches us that sex was given to man as a gift to God's children, of which unbelievers are not. Irritated, the unbeliever responds, Are you telling me that sex wasn't meant for unbelievers to enjoy 
the same way that you enjoy it? Yes. Although God allows unbelievers to have sex and families, the original plan for sex was for believers, for his children. Unbelievers are simply reaping the benefits allotted to believers. The real blessing with sex is between two married believers, nothing less. The unbeliever says, well, I don't believe in God, so I'm going to stick with what I believe. And the believer says, I understand, and quotes 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So he says, I understand. Furthermore, the believer adds something as wonderfully spiritually stimulating as sex was meant for God's children and even to bring about thanksgiving. You ever thought about that? Why would he make sex between two believers in a marriage something that would bring about thanksgiving? You ever think about that? Why is sex different between believers and unbelievers? So the unbeliever walks away because they simply do not understand the believer's posture on the subject. But to the point on the board, again, human rationalism, one of the hallmarks of human rationalism is that the world will actually listen to it. Believers must learn to avoid such conversations as they are fruitless. It's impossible to convict someone of sin if the supernatural, think of sexual sins, it's impossible to convict someone of, let's say, sexual sin if the supernatural is agreed upon as inadmissible in court. So in our little fictitious example, what if the believer tried to argue with the unbeliever minus supernatural truth? It would be impossible to argue that or anything other than what the world currently promotes, which is sex is natural and ought to be enjoyed by any and all, regardless of marital status. That seems to be the way of the world. Certainly what the flesh would desire. But sex was designed by God as a blessing to His children. He also laid out the law regarding sex and marriage, in the spiritual union that takes place during the act itself. Unbelievers reject all of that and consider sex at the physical and possibly the emotional levels only. And so I did some reading and some research and you know, some poking around on the subject. And since the topic of sex is such a hot point, and it ought to be because I think it's really the thing nowadays. I mean, I was just, this is, I can't believe he's having me say it, but I'll say it. I was watching a program, uh, I think it was yesterday, and there was a, femi- a woman who said, I am a feminist, and her ridiculously wimpy husband was 
you know, sitting backwards and just sitting there. And she was being interviewed by, like, ABC or one of the big networks. I can't remember. Because her 12-year-old daughter was watching porn. And the mother said, well, we're raising her to be able to think on her own. And so the interviewer says, well, what about her on her Facebook account with her bra? She's 12. Showing her bra. And all her high school, not even high school, I don't think it was, junior high school, friends are looking at this. What do you say? Well, being a feminist, I think that she needs to learn to think on her own. Because we know how the whole Catholic schoolgirl thing goes. They go to college and they're like, wild woman. Oh, okay, so that justifies, human rationale justifies allowing your 12-year-old daughter to do these things? And she was, and the husband sitting there, I almost jumped through the screen. Anyways. Sex is a big deal, folks, and Satan's using it to destroy little girls and little boys. And they don't really want to have much to do with anything because they're flat out miserable by the time they're your age. And that's a a shame. So uh, one of my favorite... um, I shouldn't say my favorite. One of the pastors I enjoy reading from time to time is John Piper. And he did a sermon back in 81, I guess it was, Sex and the Single Person. But this is what he said about this thing, about sex being a gift to God's children. It's a gift to God's children. That was the original design, the pleasure of sex. The supernatural aspects of sex are a gift to his children in marriage. God created these sexual things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe, 1 Timothy 4.3. By its very design, it can only be for believers because it is designed as an occasion for thanksgiving. But those who do not, quote, know the truth, the truth, namely, that God is the giver of all good gifts and worthy to be glorified and thanked. Those who hold down this truth, Romans 1.18 and 25, and do not trust in God, cannot satisfy their sexual desires according to the design of God. All their sexual behavior is sin because it does not spring from faith in God. Romans 14.23, and does not result in thanks to God. Sexual pleasure belongs rightfully only to believers. All others are thieves and robbers. Don't ever let the world deceive you into thinking that we Christians are trying to borrow and purify a limited amount of the world's pleasure. And I love that point. Don't ever, and it doesn't just have to do with sex even, but sex is the one that most can relate to readily. Don't ever let the world deceive you into thinking that we Christians are trying to borrow and purify a limited amount of the world's pleasure. 
think that's the point that I really like from Piper on this, that, you know, somehow Christians are seen as the robbers of sex. That we're trying to corral something that's natural, but yet it was originally created by God for His children in marriage. So we are not the robbers, we are not the thieves, in other words. And I like that because it says that somehow Christians are seen as robbers of sex when in all actuality it's the other way around. And again, we're still on human rationalism, remember. Sex just drives the point home. God created sexual pleasure for His subjects alone. And the world has rebelled against Him and stolen His gifts and corrupted them and debased them and turned them into weapons of destruction and laughed at those who remain faithful to the king and use and use his gifts according to his word. Again, God created sexual pleasure for his subjects alone, and the world has rebelled against him and stolen his gifts and corrupted them and debased them and turned them into weapons of destruction and laughed at those who remain faithful to the king and use his gifts according to his word. I also looked at some stuff from Calvin on sex. John Calvin. Strictly speaking, God has destined the world and all that is in it for his children alone. For this reason it is said that they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5 5. In the beginning, Adam himself was given dominion over all things on condition that he remained obedient to God. Therefore, when he rose in rebellion against God, he deprived himself and his posterity of this right, which was conferred upon him. So, it follows that we are restored to our original dignity only by the benefit we receive from Christ to whom all things are under subjection, and this we receive by faith. Therefore, whatever men without faith get hold of, they rob or steal from others. Again, this wasn't meant to be a lesson on sex, but sex is arguably one of the greatest, most poignant examples we have of human rationalism mutilating something godly. You ever get that sense that if you show up with Scripture, no sex outside of marriage, this thing, that somehow you're trying to take something that was given by God, if you would, to everyone, and somehow we're just trying to cordon off a piece of it, we're trying to rob a piece of someone's freedom. That's human rationalism, folks. Because the Bible says that God created it for the pleasure for His children, so that in turn, when He does something that's a blessing to you, that's pleasurable to you, what do you say to God? Thank you. So that you give thanksgiving. All glory and honor are God's and His alone. One last practical note on sex. This is from MacArthur. Practical note. No sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems, 
and destructiveness than sexual sin. It has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. We could go on and on. Why do you think that is? Because the world has robbed these things, has stolen, let's call it what it's rightfully called, even the glory of God in sex, has perverted the gift itself. And when there's something evil, there's no goodness in it. You don't receive blessings by means of sin. So enough said on that topic. We're back to this point up here on the board. Human rationalism, you know, sex has that ability to do that, doesn't it? Sex gets everybody thinking immediately. Why? Because it's so ridiculously pervasive. And, you know, we may sound like crotchety old people. Like, I bet you if I was like, you know, back when I was a teenager listening to myself now, I'd be like, look at that old guy. Look at him. You don't have any hair left. He's just some crotchety old dude that's got nothing else to do on a Thursday night but bark out commands to people from the Bible. He's just trying to oppress us, you know. Everybody light their lighters, ooh, you know. I wasn't that bad, by the way. I, was, I got carried away. But, you know, I'm sure in my head I was like, you know, a little bit like that, like, pff, whatever. And, uh, you know, there's no real getting around it. That's just human rationalism, as Edward said at the start of class, that doesn't even make reasonable sense that the lusts become the judging, become the source of judgment in one's soul, rather than actual reason. So one of the hallmarks of human rationalism is that the world will actually listen to it. Believers must learn to avoid such controversies as they are fruitless. It's impossible to convict someone of sin if the supernatural is agreed upon as inadmissible in court. So back to the verse that instigated all this as a point of review, nonetheless. 1 John 4.1, are you still there? All right, let's read it again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jump to verse 5. We've already read this last time, so... They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Didn't I just give you a point on that? If you speak like the world with human rationalism, the world might just listen to you, even though you walk around with a little badge that says Christian on it. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We, the apostles in view, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, the hallmark of true faith is the fruit of all fruits, which is what? Love. Go to verse 11. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. 
and his love is perfected in us. And again, remember John, when he's this black and white, he's talking about the dominating lifestyle. So concentrate for a moment. This got us pondering on Sunday. What is the difference? If love is the great fruit, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and the greatest of these is love, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. John talks an awful lot about love, so much so they call him, they dubbed him the apostle of love. <clears throat> so what's the difference between God's love and man's? Here's a fair statement about that, and do not make this doctrine, please. It's just to get you thinking. God's love versus man's. The unregenerate man is inherently selfish, Romans 8, 7. The regenerate man, abiding in God's love, expresses his love towards others in myriad spirit-guided ways. When we walk by means of the Spirit, we're filled by the Spirit, what do we do? We bear His fruit. The greatest of these, the first one listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is what? Love. This is how we know. You want to take a litmus test? Look at yourself. Self-examine yourself. Do you love others? Do you love others? Do you love God, the first? Christ said it himself. What's the greatest? Teacher, what's the greatest? Love God. And also love others. These are the ones. In other words, love. So if you want to understand what it means to be regenerate, what it means to be converted, what it means to be given these Gifts that you now can spiritually appraise. Look for love. You don't have it all. I don't have it all. We don't have, do you have every command memorized? No. Most of you have never even read the whole Bible. So how could you possibly have them all memorized? But does that mean you're dead in the water? No. May it never be. The regenerate man abiding in God's love expresses his love toward others in myriad spirit-guided ways. Romans 8, 7 up here on the board. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So unbelievers, whether they'll ever admit it or not, are actually selfish lovers. Again, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. I gave you McDonald on this up here in the board. We are never intended to be terminals of God's blessings, but channels only. God's love is given to us, not that we might hoard it for ourselves, but that it might be poured out to us through others. In other words, I've I've always explained it as the dynamic spiritual life. Um, love is dynamic. It, it moves through. It flows. Even the, when I've taught you the filling of the Spirit, even the filling of the Spirit, it's not like filling a cup and then you have a cup full of the Spirit. It's wind in a sail. And a wind goes right through a sail, doesn't it? But yet you get the force of the Spirit. You get the force of the Spirit. Um, so in that sense, we're not terminals. And selfish lovers, by default, say, gimme, gimme, gimme. I just want more and more and more and more. And that's why they get jealous when 
someone that they have affections for, shows love to other people. Why is that? It's because they want it all for themselves. Selfish lovers are terminals. Give me more love from me, and if you show it to anyone else, we're going to have a problem. I'm going to get all jealous. I'm going to get all this kind of a thing. Well, there's no jealousy in love, not God's love. There's no jealousy. You should be happy to see someone that you care about growing in God's grace and knowledge enough to actually reach out to another person and show them love. That should make you smile, not jealous. Jealous means you're a selfish lover. Think about those kinds of things. And we can take that and apply it even to God's love. I've actually met people that I would call selfish lovers with God. Which is the strangest thing. It's they want to convince you and everyone else that they've got the corner market on love. And they're not really interested even in sharing it which proves their immaturity. So, back to the point on the board. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. We are never intended to be terminals of God's blessings, but channels only. God's love is given to us, not that we might hoard it for ourselves, but that it might be poured out to us through others. As I mentioned on Sunday, and as we discussed in great detail at the Bible study last night, The Bible gives us baseline reasons to be confident of our salvation. For starters, there's lots of things that we can think about that would give us confidence relative to our salvation. 1 John 4.13 speaks to this point. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because... He has given us of His Spirit. Well, that's a big deal, folks. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and He has an active ministry, which He does for every believer, then guess what? You will know it. You will know it. And that's all I can tell you. So don't ask Pastor Ed, hey, what do you think? I I I have enough problems. Honestly, I'm not here to judge whether or not you're saved or whether or not what the condition is of your spiritual life, it's not my job. I see big picture, I see trends, I see enough that goes on that I guide the ship and I lead the way I lead. But in terms of my judging your salvation status or, you know, how well you're getting along, look, don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Because I'm the type of guy that will think about it. You throw me something like that, I'm going to think about it for a day, at least. So just think about what you throw at me, please. Because I will think about it. But it's not my job to think about it. Do you understand? So by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Another way to look at that verse is that since love is fruit of the Spirit, If we love, we know we have Him. And He confirms Himself to us simultaneously and always. That's another way to look at that verse. 
We know that God the Holy Spirit, His fruit, God is love. God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's love. We know that if we love, then we have Him. And He will confirm the presence of that love, of Himself, which is those interchangeable terms. If He's there, His love's there. If the love's there, He's there. That's the point of the Scripture. He will confirm it Himself in you. And that's the best I can do for you, folks. I can't tell you that you're saved or not saved or whatever. I can only tell you that it's real. I know from my own personal experience, oh yeah, it's real. I know He's there. All the time. So we shall have confidence. I guess that's, in my notes here, I have capital S-H-A-L-L, all capitals. We shall have confidence if we are believers. Though it does vary, Scripture allows for variations, mostly due to maturity and temptation and stuff like that. But we will have, or we shall have confidence if we are believers. We might call that abiding confidence, and I use that word abiding because in his epistle, John uses abiding as equivalent to believing. If you abide, you're a believer. If you're a believer, you abide. And so if you're abiding in Christ, then you abide, if you would, in God, in the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and you therefore abide in confidence. Make sense? So you have what I would call, fairly, abiding confidence. A saved person will abide in Him, and the Holy Spirit in Him will convict Him of this reality if it truly exists. We just saw that. It's also 1 John 3.24. With the proof of such a reality, as opposed to mere proclamation, being that a believer will produce that which is intrinsic to God the Holy Spirit. Think of the fruit. Galatians 5.22-23. The first is love. Paul says it in the greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians 13.13. 13. That's all John's saying. Why is that so hard? Why is it so hard? Unless you're an unloving jackass. Unless you're a self-absorbed person. Then you might look in the mirror really hard and say, have I actually been changed? That's all the Spirit's been saying. And that's a good examination. Who cares if you're 75 and you've got one more day to live? And you realize that on your deathbed and you're saved then when you thought you were saved, you know, when you got first communion somewhere or something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who cares? The objective is to get it right. The objective is to have a changed heart. That's the objective. So there's no judgment going on. I mean, that's the, that's the parable of the, the laborers. Some of these guys came in at the 11th hour and what do you say? First shall be last, and last shall be first. Ha ha, I'll give whoever I want to give to eternal life, blah, blah, blah. What do you think about that? <laughs> See, human rationalism says what? I've been doing it for 75 years. He's not even believing until the last day. I better get some crowns or something. You better give me some goodies up there. It better be a welcome basket with bigger than his or something. Something better be better. No, you know what was better, you jackass? Your whole life. What a self-absorbed thing to say, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Anyways, 
We do it. It's ridiculous. We're so pathetic. We're actually grotesque. Aren't we like beasts? <laughs> Who said that? David, I think he says. I, I was like a beast, he says in the Scripture. 1 John 3.24, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the Spirit also made a practical issue out of patience, specifically in evangelism, but I'm just about out of time. Um, I guess what I'll say here is, up here on the board, we'll cover a couple of things. Relative to salvation and patience and these kinds of things, realizing now that, you know, this might take some people, like the 75-year-old on the deathbed, it may take them a little while. I don't know. The imputation is like that. God's already know who saved not. He's already elected everyone, so we're talking about the manhood side. Salvation for many people is a drawn-out process, speaking from the manhood side. While the judicial act of justification is a moment in time, man has a habit of exploiting God's patience in counting the cost of salvation, which means, excuse me, denying self and following Christ. That's the pattern. Deny self, follow Christ. I don't want to deny myself. Well, then what did Christ say? Then you can't follow me. Come back another time. But I said these words, and I said that prayer. I even came up to the altar, and I did this thing. I went through these works. Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I did all these religious works. I never knew you. Yeah. So salvation might be a drawn-out process. We believers have been given the Great Commission, and since it's a drawn-out process, some of you can even relate now that it took you a while. Patience is a virtue. Patience is especially useful in the process of evangelizing. Our job is to teach the gospel accurately, including the challenging aspects of it that suggest a person count the cost of discipleship, denying oneself and following Jesus before accepting the invitation. We should challenge people. We should say, you know, what say you of sin? I was telling Scott after class last night, um, one of the most direct things you could possibly say with an unbeliever is, if I tell you that God has found a way to pay for your sins, is that something you want to talk about? There's a good place to start the gospel conversation. If I tell you that God found a way to pay for your sins, is that something you'd want to talk about? Well, what does that do? It doesn't let him off the hook, does it? What do you mean, pay for my sins? Jesus said himself, I came to save who? Sinners. So if they're not willing to have that conversation with you, that they are sinners, that God's holy and they're not, and that they actually need a Savior then it's not the right conversation. If you start way out here with a cheap, convenient gospel that just says, say these things, and being saved equals going to heaven, and that's your gospel, saved equals heaven, 
And you don't say anything about saved from what? Sin, which is the real issue. Is that not the real issue with the gospel? The real issue is not even going to heaven. Do you understand that? The real issue is actually sin. That's the gospel. The real issue, the prick, if you would, is about sin. We wouldn't need a gospel if there wasn't a sin problem. Amen? So it's not about going to heaven. You don't present somebody the gospel say, you know, if you believe what I'm about to tell you, now just sit there. If you believe what I'm about to tell you, you get to go to heaven. Oh, tell me. And you just say, you know, believe these words and this kind of a thing. Maybe you're locked out, like many of us, and that soil was already ripe for the planting. And somehow they had already come to the conclusion that they were sinners. And in that way, you were actually able to evangelize them even with a, quote, convenient gospel or a hacked-off version. Or maybe you were really astute already and you knew they were conditioned and you didn't even have to address that thing. And you did it that way. I don't know. You know, God's pretty creative in the way He's gone about saving people. Amen? Yeah, and He can use buffoons. He can use idiots. I mean, He can use a lot of things to save a person. I mean, I'm sure He saved people that have gotten hacked up Gospels for years. (laughs) Right? Because the Spirit used what He used and filtered some things out. Who knows? Maybe you got a little piece over there and a little piece over there and a little piece over there. I don't know. What do you want me to say? I know he can make it happen, though, with a sinner. We're out of time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.